Our second reading is from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 6. He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown, and among his relatives, and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went, out, uh, he went about among the villages teaching. The word of the Lord. You know, for such a, uh, a loving and kind man, Jesus goes around and offends quite a few people. In fact, pretty much everywhere he goes, he extends love and mercy and offense at the same time. And that's what I want to look at this morning. And that's what we get in this passage. When Jesus returns to his hometown, where everyone knows you can't do anything good. So Jesus goes to his hometown, and we read that he goes into the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he ends up reading something, saying something, and then we get the response from the people there that saw him growing up. They were astonished at his sayings, and they said, where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon, and are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. That word, they took offense, is the Greek word scandalon, from which we get scandal. The people were scandalized by him. And really, it's a very powerful word in Scripture. Sometimes it's translated a stumbling block, like something that just causes you to fall on your face. But when you look at the way the word scandal is used, that offense word, it means completely offended, deeply religiously offended. At the very core of who they were, they were viscerally responding to what Jesus was doing and saying. And basically the idea is this, Jesus goes to his hometown, says something or a few things, and they completely deny and reject him. Now, what exactly does he do or say? Well, actually, there's a parallel passage of this exact story that gives us a little bit more in the Gospel of Luke. In the Gospel of Luke, chapter 4, it says that Jesus goes to his hometown, and what he ends up doing is reading from the scroll of Isaiah 61. And what he reads is a prophecy about the coming Messiah. It says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. The Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, liberty to the captives, the year of the Lord's favor. Then Jesus rolls up the scroll, sits down, and says, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your presence. Jesus is making the audacious claim that he is Israel's Messiah, the Savior of God, come to bring salvation to the world. And the entire crowd of his hometown family and friends are offended. They're like, this is the carpenter guy. This is Mary's son. We know his brothers and sisters. Who does he think he is? Later on, in pretty much all of his life, Jesus offends the religious leaders. 
They think of what he is doing and saying as blasphemy, claiming to be God when you can't do that. You see, time and again, what Jesus says gets him in trouble. Think through some of the things that Jesus says that causes the religious leaders to be upset. The paralytic is there in front of him, and Jesus says to him, son, your sins are forgiven. And they say, who can forgive but God alone? A little bit later on in that same chapter of Mark, Jesus tells the the religious leaders, I am Lord even of the Sabbath. The Lord of the Sabbath is the creator. He's claiming to be God. In John chapter 8, he gets himself in trouble when he's talking about Abraham, the, the ancestor, the starter of Judaism, and he says, before Abraham was, I am. A claim not only to be older than Abraham, thousands of years old, but to be the I am, which was a technical term for Israel's God, Yahweh. And in John chapter 14 to his own disciples, he says the one that's probably most offensive to us, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. These are things we don't like to hear in modern America. It's interesting how the offense of what he said back then sat slightly different than it does for us today. The offense back then went something like this. You, you, Jesus, you can't be the way. It was the emphasis on, you're just a guy. You're from Nazareth. You're a carpenter. We know your mom and dad. We, you can't be the Messiah. Today, we'd be fine with Jesus being the Messiah. We would say, you can't be the way. Now, if we switch out the the for an A, we're comfortable with it. It doesn't matter. 2,000 years ago, today, we're all offended in some way. And I will say this. Look, this is legitimately difficult. This whole idea that Jesus is the only way, which I think he actually claims, is incredibly challenging. If you struggle with faith and doubt... If you've heard that message of Jesus is the only way, there's not an easy way around it. It is difficult. It is difficult for our cultural sensitivities. And my hope in the next few minutes is not to prove or disprove that this must be true, but to simply cause us to think a little bit about how we approach a question like, could Jesus be the only way? The way I want to do that is two things I want to accomplish here. First is, I want to suggest something that may be a little bit hard, but it's this. Everyone, everyone has exclusive beliefs. And so we should really stop being offended if somebody claims to have the exclusive truth. And the second is this, is that if you have true gospel exclusivity, the belief that Jesus is the way, it should actually lead you to be the most radically inclusive kind of person. And if it doesn't, It's not the gospel that you're holding up. So first, starting with, I would say that everyone is exclusive on some level. And the hard part with that is we think of relativism, this idea that, well, Jesus can't be the only way. Relativism would say to Jesus, you can't be the only way. There's lots of different ways. And a a take on it from a relativist's point of view is something like this. All religions are valid. Or... No one religion has the whole truth. Or it's arrogant to claim that your religion is right and others are wrong. And ultimately what we all know to be true is that everyone must be free to choose the path that works for them. 
And the assumption goes something like this. Pretty much anyone in America would say, well, there's, there's surely more than one way, right? And if you're earnest in your faith, if it makes you a better person, if you're good, that should be okay. But I would say that even that viewpoint is in and of itself exclusionary. Everyone has fundamental beliefs that are exclusionary. Because even think about this, to say there can't be one way is actually primarily a Western problem. Muslims, Buddhists, others don't actually really have a problem with it. They would say, no, we're the right way. It's primarily the West, Europe, and America, because we're rooted in individualism. And we have this primary view that everything must be seen through the lens of me, and so everyone should have their own way to go. But to say that there can't be just one way is itself an exclusive claim that claims to be superior to other claims. It's born out of a couple of assumptions that there isn't such thing as absolute truth, or that God is unknowable, or that if he is knowable, he must be loving and kind, but not holy and just. And the primary lens for viewing everything is individualism. And basically, the assumption goes like this. Western secular relativism is the way everyone should think. Everyone knows it's true. I mean, it's common sense that there can't be just one way. And so whether you're in academic circles or in media, or you're talking with friends, or if you walk into any coffee shop or bar, what you will find is that the assumption is there that everyone who knows recognizes that there's multiple paths. There can't just be one way. That's, that's backwards. That's ignorant. But even just making that claim in itself shuts down conversation with somebody who disagrees with you, who thinks there might be just one way. And it's actually fundamentally Western in that it excludes the five billion of six billion people in the world who think that their religion, their viewpoint, their worldview is the way. It's a uniquely Western thing, and we need to understand that, that we come from this perspective that says there can only be one way. That's not true when the rest of the world actually believes that there's only one way. They just disagree whether it's Christianity or not. Let me summarize this a little bit more clearly using uh, Tim Keller's The Reason for God. He puts it this way. Skeptics believe that any exclusive claims to a superior knowledge of spiritual reality cannot be true. But this objection is itself a religious belief. It is no more narrow to claim that one religion is right than to claim that one way to think about all religions, namely that all are equal, is right. We are all exclusive in our beliefs about religion, but in different ways. The most clear way to describe this is actually even just the view of the blind man and the elephant, which was told by Leslie Newbegin, from, who served in India for years, and it was this viewpoint that went around this metaphor, this story, is that the way to think about religions that a relativist would say is like, it's blind men that all see the same, or think they're seeing the same, uh, their, their own thing, but they're seeing the same elephant. It goes like this, is religions all are really just talking about the same thing, and no one can have the whole truth. And it's like this. One blind man goes up and touches the elephant and says, oh, it's long and flexible like a snake. 
And the next goes up and grabs hold of something and says, well, it's round and, and solid like, like a tree trunk. And the next one patting the side of the elephant says, no, 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 it's, it's broad and, and, and thick and it's like a wall. And the relativists would say, see, they're all just talking about the same elephant. They think they all have an exclusive view on the truth, but really they're just seeing their own view of the same thing. But the only way, of course, you can make this critique of religions is if you are personally standing from the viewpoint of somebody who can see. The only way to know that the Hindu, the Buddhist, and the Christian are all blind is that you are the only one who can possibly see it all. Relativism in and of itself is taking a superior view. Of course there can't be one way. And so in and of itself, there's a fallacy there. You're claiming to have the exclusive view excluding people who say they have the exclusive view. All of us, on some level, have exclusivity built into our viewpoint. And even secular relativism can only exist by excluding itself from its own set of rules. So, it's likely that we all have some views that negate or exclude other people's views whether that is Christianity or a melding religion or agnosticism, there's something that says this is the right way. The question then is, what does it lead to? Does it answer the most questions? And another critique of Christianity and its exclusive claims is this, and it's a very legitimate one, is that religious exclusivity leads to superiority, to marginalizing others, and ultimately to violence. Many of the world's wars are fought by religious people who think that their way is the right way. And you know what? History is riddled with that. It's true. Religious exclusivity and worldview exclusivity, even if it's not religious, so long as it has some sense of there's rules to follow, or you've got to be good or perform something, you've got to be a certain type of person, it will lead to superiority. Those who are faithful in a religious system will say, I'm doing better and therefore I'm superior to those who are not following this path. Or you'll end up caricaturing and avoiding people who differ from you. Built out of insecurity or superiority, there's a sense of, I, I'm not sure if I'm being good enough in my religion, or if I am being good enough, I'm superior to all of you who are not. And it's true that often religious exclusivity leads to demonizing, marginalizing those with whom you disagree. But the question I would have is this, is it possible that believing that there's only one way could actually lead to being more loving and inclusive? And I would say yes, if that message is the gospel. A gospel of grace should actually produce the most radically inclusive kind of person. The gospel message is not you've got to perform, you've got to be better, you've got to be a certain type of person. The gospel message starts with a fundamental starting point that we are all fallen. It says in Romans 3, all have sinned, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified, made right by the redemption that comes in Christ Jesus. And the follow-up to that is Ephesians 2, where it says, for it is by grace you and I have been saved. It's a gift of God so that none of us can boast. 
none of us can feel superior to anyone else. It's a gift of God that Jesus died for our sins. And it's a need that we all have that Jesus dies for our sins. The gospel makes this claim. All of us fall short. None of us can be good enough. And yet, salvation is offered freely by grace. This should lead to the sorts of things that cannot allow us to be exclusive of people even as the truth seems exclusive. Look, if you believe that you're totally fallen, that all of us are sinful, it's going to lead to humility because there's no point at which I can ever think of myself as better than anyone else. Whether they are a criminal or a saint, we are all equally fallen. It puts us on the same playing field. There's no grounds for caricaturing, demonizing, pushing somebody out. Humble because we're all sinful. And yet, it's not humility that leads to insecurity, and I'm always trying to compare myself, because I know I'm loved by grace. Jesus died for my sins. That gives me assurance, complete security in who I am in Christ. My value is not determined by being better than you or proving that I'm better than you or putting you down. I know my life is bound in Christ's death for me. And that gives me the sort of assurance and security that finally enables me to love people who are different than me, to give to people who don't deserve anything, to extend mercy to those who I think really don't deserve mercy. Why? Because I had mercy extended to me and I didn't deserve it. The gospel should totally transform our view of ourselves and our approach to others. It should be gospel exclusivity that produces radical inclusivity. And you see this throughout the scriptures. In Galatians 3.28, Paul writes, pushing against any kind of exclusive way of living, he says, this is what we know. There's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for we are all one in Christ. Do you know how radical this statement was in the first century? This was saying that ethnic distinctions, which were completely held up back then, do not make a difference. That social distinctions, which were firmly in place in that first century world, are not determinative of your value. That being male nor female in a patriarchal culture does not determine your value in Christ. This was completely radical in 50 AD, but it was born out of a gospel of grace that recognizes we are all sinful and we all enter the same way, falling upon the mercy of the God who died for us. It's out of this sort of thinking that Western equality even developed. That Western sense of there should be no difference between black and white, male and female, is actually born out of a gospel of grace, even though it's moved far from that. Jesus himself, Jesus himself lived this out not just with people of different ethnicities, but people who fundamentally disagreed with him. Jesus' disciples included tax collectors and prostitutes and possessed people. You don't hang out with possessed prostitutes or tax collectors in the first century world if you want to be a religious guy. And you know what Jesus does is he spends time with them and yet calls them to repent. So his message was distinctive. I am the way. You need to turn from your sin and follow me. 
But regardless of whether they did or not, he loved them. His message stayed the same. His call to repent and follow him was the same for everyone. But his love was not withheld on the basis of whether they responded or not. Jesus had enemies, people who were offended by him, people who disagreed with what he said, and he loved them. Gospel tolerance is very different than relativistic tolerance. Relativistic tolerance says let's minimize differences, let's hide them, let's pretend like they don't exist, or wherever the differences exist, let's try and shake the foundation of those belief systems. Gospel tolerance says love those with whom you disagree. Extend mercy and kindness to those who are most different than you. And so that's my question. If instead of being on the skeptical, doubting side today, you're on the I firmly believe this, Jesus is the only way, is does your Christian faith make you the most radically inclusive person? How do you feel about those who don't believe the same Christian faith you believe? Whose politics are pushing against your Christian faith? Does it make you angry? Or are you concerned for them? How do you deal with those whose lives don't follow Jesus' way of living? Do you avoid them? Or do you embrace them? Do those who don't believe what you believe even want to be around you? Listen, when it comes down to it, the gospel is radically inclusive. But the gospel is radically inclusive because Jesus himself allowed himself to be excluded. The message of the cross is one where Jesus was excluded so we might be included. He took our offense, our sin upon himself on the cross so that we who are criminals might be pardoned. He was excluded, forsaken by God the Father, that we who have offended God with our sin might be included and embraced. If you're struggling with this whole thing, that's okay. You should. This is not easy stuff for those of us who have grown up in the West. It's not easy to reconcile a world that says everything should be okay with a Jesus who says, I'm, I'm the way. It's not easy. I'm not trying to convince you that it is. But I would say this, the gospel is the easiest way. All you have to do is admit that you're sinful and accept that he died for you. That's it. The gospel claims Jesus is the only way and yet it also says Jesus died for all and is available to all. Let's pray. Lord, 20 minutes is not enough to do justice to the challenge of your claims to be the God, the way, the Savior. But I pray in just a few minutes of thinking about it, of considering who you are and what you've done for us, that we might see that all of us have viewpoints 
and approaches to people that need to be challenged and that in the gospel of grace is an answer that we are sinful, but you've died for us. You love us and gave yourself for us. Amen. Savior's love for me.